Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. get the most loving of partners who's really caring and doesn't want their partner to have to suffer but if you always do it for them you're taking away any opportunity for them to recover and now you've officially created yourself a full-time carer position let them struggle and give them a bit of support and this is how but don't overdo it it's all about that balance and taking it as it comes because no day is going to be perfect. There's going to be ups and downs and you have to roll with it. You can still have a full life with some level of disability, but again, it's going to be what you make of that life. Hello and welcome to On A Good Day with me, Elizabeth Callahan, And me, Julia Ajayi. This is the podcast which delves into brain injury and its impact on all involved. Welcome to a brand new episode. Today, I'm delighted to have with us on the podcast, specialist occupational therapist, Roisin Hyde, who was instrumental in helping my husband, Paul, when he came out of hospital after suffering his stroke, along with her amazing team. Roisin works with the Community Neuro Rehabilitation Team for Richmond-upon-Thames. It provides rehab and support to stroke survivors as they settle back at home and integrate into the community. Welcome to the podcast, Rasheen. It's so great to have you on here and in person as well, which is always a bonus. I guess, first of all, could you just briefly sum up for those that may not be aware, the, the role of a neuro-occupational therapist? No worries. Well, thank you for having me. And I should have expected the question about describing what an occupational therapist <laughs> Sorry, is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't prepare for it. Um, but an occupational therapist, our job is all about helping people back to their everyday occupations. And that's anything from being able to get out of the bed, doing your basic things like washing, dressing, feeding yourself to all the big occupations of life, being able to go out and do something, enjoy yourself, cook a meal, do a hobby you enjoy. Um, and we look at the whole person. So whether it's a physical impairment, cognitive impairment, your vision, how your mood's affecting you, you gotta take everything into consideration to treat that person. And so that's what we do. Yeah, you really do. And that's, it's amazing. Um, and obviously your work is specifically with the community. Mm. So when they come out of hospital, how do you bridge that gap from somebody coming from hospital where they may have had quite a lot of intensive rehab mm. and had, you know, a lot of care within that environment and then they come home and then it is very much 
the family, if you know, if they have one and those people that are around him and obviously the community. How is that gap bridged? Different ways for depending on, on people and their situation. For um, we've got two different teams within our team. We have an early supported discharge team where we deliver quite intensive five days a week quite intensive rehab from if they need OT physio speech and language therapy they'll get it and then that's gradually wound down over the six weeks to help get that person and their families set up to a place where they can manage their condition they're doing more for themselves and if there's ongoing goals and need we're in the lucky position of being able to continue that work with people as what happened for Paul, we worked with him for much longer than that initial six weeks. For other people, if they've already had a good spell of inpatient rehab or they don't need that level of intensity, usually we'd aim to see somebody within two weeks of coming out of hospital. You'd start with that initial assessment of what things are affecting you, what are your main priorities and concerns, and hear from the family member as well, ideally, um, so that then you can set a collaborative plan of what are your priorities and this is how we could hopefully go about making those a reality but it it will vary depending if someone's living alone and doesn't have support that can have a say having a supportive family friends around them can make a huge difference it can help or hinder it depends on what the quality of that support is like as Interesting. Well. well, that but leads us on really because what is the role of those family and friends? And maybe you could just draw on some of the ways that maybe families do hinder that progress. Yeah. So I suppose I always think of rehab as being a bit like what's that nurture versus nature. You need to have a good environment around you in order to be able to develop and succeed at things, particularly when you're got a challenge so someone with a brain injury or post-stroke there may be a level of physical impairment cognitively their thinking skills are going to be different how they're seeing the world could be different and their mood they might be really low they might be really anxious there's the whole self-adjustment to what life was like before this happened to what it's now and coping with that is huge so taking how the person is in an individual is the first part of that. Um, but practical strategies, things like encouraging and reassuring, I think is, is the first thing, especially if that person's feeling low and they're, they're not wanting to do something because I'm not able to do it how I could before. It's not motivating. In fact, it's depressing me when I do this and um, I can't do it. It makes me feel worse about myself. I also think family members that really they, they need to kind of be trained a little bit to be like OTs um, to do something <laughs> so what true, we call um, mm. activity analysis. So if somebody wants to get back to doing something like I want to be able to take a walk in the park. Oh, great. OK, great. And so they work on their physical strength. They can do the walk. There's the cognitive safety element. OK, how are they with their road crossing? Can they go out themselves? No. So that family member can say, okay, let's go for a walk together each day, practicing, 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 giving that encouragement, even when the person doesn't really want to go. Maybe it's going for a coffee at the end of it, or there's an ice cream, you know, having a carrot at the end of that stick (laughs) um, to be able to get outside as well. And then being able to measure your improvements and reflect back and 
point out to the person, well, you have made progress. We weren't doing this before. Look at your Fitbit steps, how much more they are. There can be so many ways of measuring that progress because it can be really slow over time. And people are used to, we like quick turnaround. We like to mm -hmm. succeed quickly and that slow, steady working away at something can be really tricky, um, but it's what's needed. And I suppose a big part of that then is not only is it managing the person who survived the stroke, their frustrations and their mood, but it's managing yours as well. I certainly know and like when I'm working with people, it's for maybe four to five minutes or an hour, I'm able to shut the door at the end of it and kind of sit in the car or get my bike after and go, oh, thank goodness I don't have to deal with that for any longer. <laughs> And like with Paul, for example, I would get really frustrated and I did a lot of self-reflection on how I had to manage my tone and like my approach with him because I couldn't speak to him like I would you or I. His processing was so slow that he wouldn't respond. He wouldn't notice any verbal cues, no matter how short they were. And I would have to put my hands on him and physically move him on or stop him from doing something and you know when you're used to just reacting like you normally do and you can't that takes a huge toll on you as well and sometimes you're not in a place where you can support them to do that activity because it's going to end in chaos and bloodshed for both of you <laughs> and it's, it's not going to be a good experience so it's knowing when you're not in a place to help as well um, because sometimes it can do more harm than good if you're not in that emotional place. So true. And, and sometimes we, we're hard on ourselves because we're, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I should be helping him do that. But actually, I've been a bit stressed with the kids. They're running around. They're hungry. Paul's trying to cook dinner. And it's still not going to be for like another hour if I let him do it himself. And sometimes in those instances, we shouldn't feel bad for it. We do have to step in and be like, like, let's get this done in 10 minutes. Yeah. I'll finish it off. You've done a great job in preparing it. Exactly. And, and usually, actually, by that time, he is quite tired. You can tell yeah. that his progress pro processing skills are really slowing. So it, it really is that balance, isn't it, Roshi? Mm. And actually, you've made me feel so much better. Good. <laughs> and you always seemed really, really patient as well. <laughs> so I think he is quite a tough patient, if I'm honest, at oh, times. Most definitely. <laughs> but balanced with his great enthusiasm. If he hadn't been so motivated and working so hard, we wouldn't have been working with him for as long. And that's the challenge when, you, when you're with somebody a lot you're going to get more annoyed more easily. And as I say, it happens to therapists as well. And like, you just have to look after yourself and get your breaks because you need it. You're already doing, so not only are you supporting them and the extra load that takes, but your own roles and responsibilities have changed. The, how you work together as a couple, has changed the kind of things that he always used to do that he doesn't do anymore now you're all of a sudden responsible for oh you know the the when I think about if I could couldn't rely on my partner to do those things anymore the impact that has it's huge that's something Julia and I have really share that experience yes we have and Rasheen I think um you know just hearing you voice as well as then acknowledging how for us as partners or for other carers that there is a frustration 
um, that we have to manage. But also, I think the translation of occupational therapy into kind of everyday life and meaningful life. And, and I think the role that you play as occupational therapists in that transition of from hospital to home, but also meaningful activity into everyday life. And it's great to hear you talking about bringing uh, carers, partners along on that journey, because as you say, we're, we're left after you leave for day-to-day -day activity and have a huge role to play in helping our partners, uh, those people who we're caring for, achieve their best on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it took me a while to really understand that occupational therapy was about everyday life. You know, it felt that it was something different. It was, it was a profession. It was something that I had to learn about. Whereas once I realized it was, you know, it's about getting the most out of just everyday life and with all of its frustrations and all of its challenges and all of its opportunity as well. I think that that really helped me. As our listeners will know, um, my husband had his brain injury 12 years ago. So we're quite a long way down the line. One of the challenges that I'm now finding is how do I support Hector myself us as a family unit to keep pushing those boundaries you know to to reset new objectives you know the the home environment is now very familiar but how do we keep moving forward in a way what would your advice be on that similar to how anyone progresses or moves forwards in life you have to stop and think about what you want out of your life and what direction it's going in and that's no different if you're recovering from a brain injury or not. Um, so whether it's they can do that by themselves or it's taking time to sit together as a family and think about, OK, what journey do we want to go on as a family or as an individual this year and making a bit of a goal about how to do it. If I want to take up something new, I'm getting into cycling of the turbo trainer is my plan for this year so you know, I have a few things lined up for Christmas presents I've been buying other bits in the black sale you have to put a bit of planning and thought and effort into it it's that breach as well but you're beyond going beyond the four walls of home is often the, mm -hmm. the thing and, and getting out there again mm -hmm. um, and especially if mobility or access is an issue or the person's safety and independence going out and about all those things um, need to be taken into consideration. Um, I've heard of one past patient recently that he worked in the education sector. Returning to work isn't um, feasible this moment in time, but his partner arranged for him to visit the local university and give talks to students in healthcare disciplines about his experiences and, you know, such a rewarding experience for him and he's getting to practice his speech and all those other factors it's something that's motivating and meaningful to him because he feels he's giving something back and he's contributing and so it's being creative I think whether it's a voluntary role joining like there's the Integrated Neurological Society here in Twickenham but there's other charitable organizations and Sometimes people have a, 
kind of there's a stigma associated with that people don't like to get involved or that's for other people it's not for me or I don't see myself that way and all I can say is you don't know until you try like anything trying anything new in life it's going to be difficult to begin with but get finding an interest outside of the home and ideally away from the family so that they are again getting the, a bit of their own identity back and building a new identity of me myself now as a stroke survivor not who I used to be because that's gone same for any of us we can't be who we were a few years ago so, yes I I absolutely yeah, yeah. agree and I think that um sort of giving a refresh to those things because you know we're involved in with um different organizations and volunteering but actually resetting some of those objectives I think is really good advice and another question I have for you Rasheen is how do you in your role as an occupational therapist support the brain injury survivor and their family to make those community connections for people who may not have been involved in community activities before usually kind of having that conversation and giving information about it. And then I think it's all down to timing um, because many people, we, especially you know, you're first out of hospital, it can be a bit of information overload. And then when therapy teams are leaving, there could be that sense of abandonment or it could be, yes, I'm ready. I don't want to be affiliated with any services anymore. I just want to stand on my own two feet. Um, and for some people, they're, they're just not ready to take the advice we're wanting to give them or suggesting at the time of coming out of hospital, whether it's mood or anything else. And that's when those charitable organisations can be so valuable further down the line where someone has reached that level of acceptance or that inner need, there's the desire to change is burning. And they're like, no, something, something now has to change. And it's just a matter of I suppose encouraging it, revisiting it, rechecking in with, okay, what are our aims for this year or this six months? Because things change over time. It is so true. I wanted to touch on some research that you did a few years ago about carers and about their experiences of mm. looking after and that changing kind of roles with looking after a partner. Would you just be able to explain a little bit about what you found? Yeah, so I was very lucky to get um, a National Institution Health Research funded scholarship. So I got to do a master's for a year and did a small study. So it was just two focus groups of people who were partners of stroke survivors. What I really wanted to look at was how their experiences of supporting the stroke survivor to self-manage at home post-stroke and self-management very much therapy seek but or speak but self-management is someone's ability and their confidence to look after themselves help people get more independent in doing something more confident in doing something so that they need less encouragement they need less support and at the end of the day you're not having to give as much time and support to them and they're a lot more independent that's what it's all about and so how can people support that more effectively <laughs> that is the key question and what we're really talking about today first of all I think some of the main things were the importance of looking after the carer themselves the people spoke about the emotional toll that it takes and 
like it's a whole new life with new responsibilities, things you didn't have to do before you're responsible for, as well as looking after your partner. And they may not want to be looked after. <laughs> they, they may not make it easy for you either. So depending on the level of impairment, the level of insight, their mood, like that, that's going to be really variable. But really the, the fact that it, it will take its toll no matter what the situation is, it's going to have an impact on you. You need to look after yourself and take breaks. And it's so important to don't just take it all on yourself. Look at what's out there. Um, I say timing can be everything about getting those supports, but find out about them and get those breaks. And where can you ship them off to so that you can get a few hours? That can be really important. People found that to support the person with the stroke and giving encouragement and reassurance was really important. Adapting and finding new activities if the previous um, hobbies couldn't be engaged with. And sometimes you just have to help or take over when needed, like you were saying for the dinner, Um, because it's all a balance. You can set them up as much as you can, but sometimes time isn't in your favor or they're having a bad day and they're getting frustration so it's all about that balance and taking it as it comes because no day is going to be perfect there's going to be ups and downs and you have to roll with it and that was something a lot of people reflected on that sometimes just doing it yourself is easier and taking over and that can be one of the things I mentioned earlier about how families can hinder people's recovery so if you, you might get the most loving of partners who's really caring and doesn't want their partner to have to suffer or have the frustration of not being able to do something. But if you always do it for them, you're taking away any opportunity for them to recover or rebuild skill or an independence themselves and you're limiting them. And we, we often will have long conversations where we're you know, like, begging and pleading with um, family members to please just let them do it. Let them struggle and give them a bit of support. And this is how, but don't overdo it because you can end in a situation where the person is happy to be helped, doesn't really make any effort or initiate themselves. And now you've officially created yourself a full-time carer position because you've disabled them from coming out of that situation it can be a a missed opportunity that can be very hard to to get out of again absolutely yeah yeah I'm very much I'm probably more the other way if I'm honest um I always admired that (laughs) (laughs) we were because I'm like oh she's she's letting them off I said well he's got to do it and and that's a phrase we use as well in rehab is that positive risk taking um, because sometimes the negative consequences that's having on the person's mood or their long-term ability to live life is less inconsequential about okay they may walk into a lamp poster they you know there's your traffic is always a concern but it's like you've done all that practice in advance to make sure that they're looking when they're crossing the road and then they just have to start going out and then they're okay. And the, they have to, yeah. the worst usually doesn't happen. Mm. You'll find it's already happened. Mm. You're in this situation. Mm, exactly. It's like with everyday life with, you know, children, you have to make mistakes. Yeah. And you have to learn from them. And yeah. the only way they're going to 
you know, learn and grow is by making, hopefully, small mistakes, Mm. (laughs) but then growing from that and building upon it and keeping that learning going. It's a journey that I think is also always changing, isn't it? You know, and that's being open to that change is really important. I remember when Hector was first going into a shop on his own and he really struggled to choose anything. You know, when faced with, for example, a rack of clothes to choose a jumper, just really was so overwhelming. He really um, couldn't choose. He didn't understand almost what he was faced with. Yet here we are 12 years on and uh, just before Christmas with this timing of this podcast. And he gave us all a present, myself and our two children, um, of some M&S Christmas pyjamas that he'd chosen for us all. So we've now all got matching pyjamas. <laughs> I just thought, wow, what a, you know, what a great achievement. What a great milestone. What a lovely present. And he made all of those choices about that himself independently. And I think celebrating those kind of milestones and journey is just part of it for me as well. Well, it's like what Rasheen was saying earlier about having that measurable comparison, isn't it, Mm. of how far their journey has come. So from him not being completely overwhelmed, being able to go out and choose and, you know, you actually liking them as well. (laughs) So, um, and yeah, and I think with Paul, sometimes he does get a bit, little bit in his head comparing himself to the old Paul when actually what he's achieved over the last few years has been immense. They have to give themselves credit for that. And it's easy to forget sometimes it's, well, we'll look where you were last year or look where you were even six months ago. Mm. And yeah, and really celebrate those small successes. And for us as families to celebrate that too, I think. And Rasheen, you were talking about the role of, of carers and the importance of us looking after ourselves. And I think that part of that is recognising how far we've come too with those challenges, both in in the support and in the letting go and in the managing to all be together as a family and work some of those things out. And I know that's not always possible for all people and things do change over time, but I do celebrate the fact that we've been able to do that as well is there any particular traits actually I was going to ask and I think we have touched upon this is there any particular traits that an individual has or circumstances or environments in which the patients do tend to progress better Mm. yeah there's definitely a, a couple of different factors I think one is Primarily, it's the person's own motivation and drive to recover and how, and you know, that's going to be totally individual, depending on how you're reacting to the circumstances, what your mood and resilience was like before and, you know, what your disposition was like before, because some people are half glass half full and some people are glass half empty. So the that's one aspect. Definitely the ha- people who have a, supportive family network if there's somebody else at home friends that are popping in people to support them in engaging in life that makes a massive impact compared to when you're just discharged home to sit in a room by yourself and have carers popping in four times a day it's not the most stimulating of environments that anyone is going to thrive in I always think 
people who lived life fully and well before their injury are again they're, they're more likely to be that type of person who's going to work hard no matter what and just take the challenges and and continue on fighting them um, and because they want to get back to life they've enjoyed living it and they often will have those interests and activities you know, like those meaningful occupations that they want to get back to whereas someone whose life was well I went to work and then I got home and I sat in front of the telly they can do that now they, they don't have a whole lot to necessarily drive them to, to want to do anymore they, they might want to but they're not used to putting the work in to, to get it to, to meet that challenge that's a massive factor as well definitely that makes sense and also picking up on the role of the friends because mm. we haven't quite discussed that but I know that Paul's friends were great when he came out and mm. would come around quite regularly yeah obviously over Covid it has been harder mm. to have those relationships and I think that's slightly slipped we're getting back now but you know friends c- can have a massive impact can't they on helping that person with the recovery definitely and for some people you know, not everyone gets married these days and has children and necessarily has a traditional family network around them. Um, For lots of people, their friends are their family and it's that neighbour who's popping in every day to check on them or that friend who um, comes around and takes them out every week to, to go someplace. And, you know, friends can provide such a supportive network and and they're your family when they aren't close by as well. Like, you know, my family are all in Ireland if something happened to me, but my friends popping in and, and keeping an eye on things. Never look a gift horse in the mouth. Whoever is, is helping and on board, you know, take it and we're, we're happy to work with them. And helping them to do the normal things that they were mm. doing before, like Paul's friends will take him, you know, to the rugby and make sh- kind of make sure that he's looked after. Yeah. <laughs> um, we always kind of sort of have to have one person that's like okay just make sure that Paul's okay yes not that he likes this at all but um you're the designated watcher yes slightly just checking that he's okay and maybe not drinking too much and all that kind of stuff his friends are taking him to the rugby as well Hector's friends and now our son is a great uh, Arsenal supporter just really supports that whole interest of Hector's that to be honest, I really have not been able to ever muster up any support for at all. <laughs> so I think that just having those interactions from friends that bring alive all of those different parts of, of Hector's life that um, I don't support on a, a day-to-day basis just adds so much richness. It, it feels more like normal life when they're off doing that. One of the things that we faced with Hector in hospital was the the cultural appropriateness of some of the activities Mm. with cooking for example uh, Hector cooks Nigerian food and so the OT in the hospital was great at inviting him to bring in a range of ingredients that we had at home so that he could try and cook but then when we got her, got them to the hospital, actually, because of health and safety, he wasn't allowed to use the crayfish and the agusti oh. that had been bought in and the palm oil. And 
you know, that was really disappointing and frustrating mm-hmm. for the OT and for Hector, yeah, myself. Um, but I think that that also leads me to the question of the role of the occupational therapist, you in a community setting, and how much you are able to adapt to a whole range of needs from different people in terms of their cultural backgrounds, their religious backgrounds, and how appropriately you can adapt to those needs. Absolutely. I think being at home is such a better environment compared to being in hospital. And it's once you're home, obviously, that that rehab in hospital is very important and gets people to that place. But you're limited in what you can do and where you can do it. And it's often just really, as you say, basic self-care tasks, washing, dressing, making cups of tea, making toast. Um, fair play to the OT. She's my kind of girl trying to get him cooking his, his own kind of stuff. But yes, then you run into the red tape in the hospitals of health and safety and the, the positive risk taking can be more challenging. So I definitely, I've, I've worked in acute, but I much prefer being in the community and in people's own homes around their own, you know, if they want to do a particular activity, they've already got all the stuff, it's there. Um, and we can just be so creative in what we work on with people. Like I had someone this year who, as part of her kind of work hardening and getting ready for back to work, one of her jobs was a yoga instructor. So I got her planning a yoga class and that she would then teach me a yoga class. And because I enjoy yoga, I would be able to ascertain was she teaching me effectively or not. And, you know, again, it was an activity analysis. Luckily, it was something I enjoyed as well as something that was meaningful for her. There's such variety. I could be cooking with somebody one day, then we're going on a bus or on a shopping trip. Um, to doing some life admin like paying a bill on the computer it can just be whatever floats that person's boat or what they whatever they need to do but there's a caveat with that of finding the just right challenge so there's a gradient of how challenging something is like making a cup of tea is going to be one level making an omelette is a bit harder making a roast dinner a lot more challenging and how much a person and what a person is able to do um, is a big factor in their experience of success and how much support they need and being able to find that just right challenge where they can do it and it's a little bit of effort but it doesn't leave them exhausted or feeling like really fatigued after it and then gradually finding ways of making that activity harder or progressing them to the next level and that's where that analyzing the activity finding that just right challenge takes a bit of thinking and problem solving um, and it can be when there's a big gap between what the person wants to do and what they're able to do that can be really tricky of finding that in between thing Um, because often we'll we might say okay we'll work on these other activities that are specifically focused on building up your skill in say your vision we need to improve your vision so that you can see something accurately so that then you can chop this vegetable. Um, and with Paul, we had like, the, you know, there's lots of those stories of, of the progression. But I remember one of the first things we were working on was 
making a sandwich and oh it was one of the most terrifying <laughs> experiences <laughs> and it, it was definitely a positive risk taking of you know, but having to be ready to reach in and grab things um but yeah like his his planning of the task wasn't there his vision of the task and where to place the knife and he had quite severe left neglect um, and would just wouldn't see that size the that side of things and she's like you're needing to chop cheese and I was always like oh we could I could ask Elizabeth to start buying you know ready sliced cheese but we we won't defeat and sometimes we did that sometimes we'd use ready sliced but sometimes we we would do the chopping and and it took you know there was then trying the the mezzaluna I could never say it um and and trying different strategies to get him chopping and just it took so 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 Mm. long Mm. um but it got there and that Mm. was with very graded you know first of all it was full-on full supervision Mm. hands over Mm. him ready to intervene at any moment to then more gradually with practice and yeah he he got there and there was some bloodshed there there was occasional (laughs) bloodshed but now yeah. he will, I will not even be in the room. I'll go out and he will have chopped. I'm not sure how but things will have got chopped. Mm. And that is amazing. You know, even talking about that now, that is amazing progress for yeah. him because he couldn't really see what he was doing. And he so certainly couldn't safely use a knife. No. What you're touching on there as well is linking back to the idea of confidence it's a very fragile thing for us all isn't it Mm. actually having something that is just right what was the phrase you used um the just right challenge the just right challenge enables you to build confidence Mm. as if it's a just wrong challenge it can really destroy that and um stop the progress absolutely and I think another aspect that I've heard from OTs which feeds into that just right challenge is being able to get into the state of flow Mm. something that I'm I've been so fascinated by because it's a word that I've used before oh you're in the flow but I didn't realize that it was actually a state of mind yeah how it you're carried along by the activity that you're doing and not needing to use your brain in the same way and I think that's a a marvellous thing to have learned and have become conscious of and to then for us to try and encourage ourselves even but also you know uh, Hector Paul and and other um, carers to think about the state of flow and how to build confidence and help people get into the state of flow. Absolutely because I say building that confidence is really important and Another phrase you'll hear linked with self-management in the rehab world is something called self-efficacy, which is a person's belief in their ability to you know, exert an influence on their life or to succeed at something. And you know, if you don't have that self-efficacy, you're not going to want to move forward. And it's that motivation, finding something that they enjoy doing and get into that flow state that just right challenge is is one really important thing. That is helping to give that person that mastery experience where they experience success and then it'll build their confidence more. So you you hit the nail on the head with that. And then some other things that can be really helpful is 
having a role model so and often that can be helpful to again be someone outside of the direct family unit whether it's somebody else that has had a brain injury that they meet at um, the local headway or whatever club um, where they can see oh that person's been through something like me and this is where they've come that far and that can give that sense of hope and that you know this is something that I could have as well and that's really important that encouragement and that reassurance from family members of course can help build that self-confidence as well and we spoke about it already that those emotions that the how the person's psychological state is all of that ties in so much with that motivation and then how confident you're feeling in yourself because if the person's not confident they're not going to want to do it or try it and you can lead a horse to water but you can't make them drink and yeah that that is very much life as a therapist as well you can't make anyone do anything and we're definitely not here to do that it's finding the own the person's own reasons to want to do it and reminding them of that and having that conversation especially when what they want is 10 or 100 steps away from where they are now and you have to fill in all those little in-between steps on route um, and that can feel like the biggest challenge in the world especially when there's no guarantee we're saying you could make improvements we're not guaranteeing 100 percent and people want that 100 percent you can still have a full life with some level of disability but again it's going to be what you make of that life and, and that comes down to it's that person's drive and it's it's all the mindset mm. it's all about the mindset isn't it and actually that person as well visualizing being the person that they want to be mm. and then being able to like you say take the steps towards becoming that person but sometimes people do find it difficult to mm to have that vision I suppose yeah and and it's yeah making that vision and okay even if I'm not there yet I'm that kind of person because I'm doing the things to help me get there um and and that's the identity because it's having to recreate that new identity for yourself so give yourself that new identity of I'm a person who's working towards this um despite having this brain injury despite having yeah, because it's such a barrier that, you know, it's unfair. No one else had to deal with this and it's come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it, no one asks for it to happen. No. And but you're left to deal with it. Mm. And actually, that's a great affirmation for them to be having. I am working towards mm. this. Despite you exactly know, in spite of and, you know, there's there's great power in that because being able to achieve things after having a brain injury it's it's hard work Mm. it is hard work and it's repetitious it's not fun necessarily is it the same thing every day but each time getting better and kind of knowing that they are going to get better you know with that and we'll be making progress yeah progress not perfection no no another very important phrase (laughs) absolutely oh well Sheen it's been an absolute joy to have you on Julie have you got anything else to add I think that I really want to try and remember some of those phrases that you've said (laughs) positive risk taking is one that's really standing out for me and 
Hector loves a bit of risk taking, but there's not that too much of that that goes on. And I think that uh, I'm going to explore that a bit more. Mm. Do you think about fairground rides? They kind of come to come <laughs> to mind because I just think some of that adrenaline, you know, that feeling of adrenaline and how you get that level of excitement, even, even momentarily. I, I'm really interested at how we explore that as a as a kind of next step as well. But I think from hearing you today, I'm also going to take away from that just a bit of a refresh on objectives and family um, planning. And thank you. It's been so helpful and just shows that there's it's a, a constantly evolving process. that's an active one that we need to to keep involved with all the time. So thank you. Thank you so much, Rasheen. And I know our listeners are going to get so much from this, so much value to take away. So thank you. Yeah, very welcome. And thank you both. And, and yeah, it's thanks to all the people that I've worked with over the years that have, I say, in, influenced my thinking to, to the viewpoints that I have today. And it's all learning from who I've worked with. So thanks to them as well. And I'd be interested to hear what's... Um, Hector's positive risk of the month, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe yes. he'll have that. <laughs> we'll revisit. We'll do a podcast session on going on fairground rides. Yes. <laughs> Great. Oh, thank you, Rashid. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.